Amen. Well, last week we observed that the mark of a believer is love. The mark of a Christian is love. That's the true mark, the clearest mark. And it's not just a love for other believers. It's a love for the world. It's, it's a love for all people. It's a love for the lost. And um, he, he now flips the, the page a little bit here. The, the first word that he used here is finally. And now, based on all of, the, all of the things that he has said doctrinally over the first three chapters, now he's going to make some practical applications of what we believe. And um, in this section, verses 1 through 12, he's going to begin with this matter of moral purity that we're going to look at today. And then next week, we're going to look at his next topic, which is brotherly love in verses 9 through 12. Well, I want to tell you the story about a cross-country runner. Several years ago, uh, I used to be a cross-country coach, and we had a team that was a very strong team, and we had a, we had a set of core runners who were, were very fast. And one of the runners in particular, one of, the, one of three runners, had, had potential to win a meet. And that, that, that says a lot, because typically when high school teams get together and they have conference meets, there would be 150 runners, sometimes more, sometimes a few less. And to win one of those, it meant that you're pretty elite. We had this, we had this uh, runner who was very, very strong. We had high expectations for him. And a, a race started, and he had the fastest start he had ever had. And at each of the markers in the race, he was, he was among the top three. And the and the person who was number one had set a number of course records, and he was truly an elite runner. But this, but this runner was, was behind him, but at least he was keeping up. And then finally it came time for the last stretch, about 100 yards from the finish line. He was right behind the fastest two runners who won every meet, but he was in a position where he could out-sprint them. And, and we were cheering him on, and everyone was yelling, and it was an amazing moment. And then all of a sudden, a hundred yards before the finish line, he stopped. And he just stood there and started looking around. And he was way ahead of the fourth runner in the race. But then the fourth runner passed him, and the fifth runner passed him, and the sixth, and the tenth, and the fifteenth, and the twentieth. And then finally... He started jogging toward the finish line, and he probably ended up somewhere in the mid to late 20s in terms of his time when he could have potentially finished at worst in the top three or maybe even one if he had outsprinted the guy who won every race. Well, that was, that was a disappointment. That was a disappointment not to see him finish well because, because we had high expectations for that kid. We knew what he could do. But for some reason, and we never had an explanation, he just stopped. He just stopped. And, and that's really what Paul's fear is for these believers in Thessalonica at this moment. He's afraid that they're going to stop. As we look at the story, we remember that Paul went into the city. He preached the gospel. People heard the gospel. Many of these people who heard the gospel were Gentiles. Many of them were Jewish. And they became followers of Jesus. And Paul instructed them in the faith and how they should live. And 
Paul's fear was that somehow as he left that city, he was forced out of that city, that somehow they were going to they were going to stop running the race. They were going to stop seeking a life of holiness. I'd like to um, paraphrase something that Leon Morris, an Old Te- a New Testament scholar who's, who's passed away, uh, a way that he kind of put it. He, he said something like this. It's God's will that God's people live God's way. It's God's will that God's people live God's way. And that's, that's really how we can characterize this text that are in front of us. And we find in this text three things, three things that will help us finish well in the Christian life. Number one, number one, never give up. Never give up. We notice here in verses one and two, it says this, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now Paul begins with two verbs, ask and urge. These two verbs emphasize that Christians must live in a certain way. That's what Paul wants to lay down. He wants to make this plain that there is a certain way of life that people who follow Jesus are called to live. And um, we notice here that he doesn't base it on his own authority. This is very important. But he bases what he's going to say on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he appeals to in, his situation, in this situation. Not to his own apostleship, but to Jesus. Jesus, the one that every believer has said, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to rule my life. I want you to direct my life. And so that's who he appeals to for what he is about to say. What bolsters this His use of the word instructions in verse 2, he says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Once again, not only bolstering uh, uh, this command, but also bolstering the fact that he's resting on the authority of Jesus. This word for instructions is a word that refers to an order given in the military. So you have, you have uh, troops who might be out in the field. Commander gives an order. Those troops pass the order down one to another verbatim, just as the commander gave it. All were to obey it. This is the word that's used there. It was also a word used for civil magistrates when they made certain judgments, maybe in a trial or something like that, that these are things that must be obeyed. And so he begins with this, this idea that what he's about to lay down for believers is for all the believers without exception, and this is coming from our commander, our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he also appeals, as he's about to say this, not only to the authority of Jesus, but the inward motivation of the child of God, and that is that we ought to walk and to please God in verse 1. That we ought to walk and to please God. The, the word walk, and in, in Paul uses this very often, this concept is, is the idea that as, as we go on life's road, we, we walk with God and we grow in our relationship with God. And this is a continual process. One theologian described it as sort of like a, a baby crawling through mud. The, the baby might be moving slowly, but, but the baby needs to make progress, right? And that's how the Christian life seems sometimes. It seems slow, but what Paul is saying here is that as we go through the course of life, God is calling us, calling us to continue to grow in our faith, to to do so more and more. Now, there's an old saying that we become what we are committed to. We become what we are committed to. 
This week in, in a Bible study that we had on Thursday night, we showed a video with a man named Dr. Ron Sauer. He's a professor at the Moody Bible Institute. And, and about a month ago, he made a, a video about as close to going viral for a quiet time video as probably you'll ever find. I think in a month, there were 80-something 80, 80 thousand views of this particular video, which is amazing when he's only describing to a group of students his, his um, approach to his daily quiet time. But one of the things that he talked about when he talked about with his, his life with the Lord and his walk with the Lord is he pointed out that it's a lifetime thing. And Dr. Ron Sauer is, 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 is one of the finest scholars, New Testament scholars living today. Uh, Dr. Ron Sauer is a remarkable man. He, he, was a, he was a Marine officer during Vietnam. And he has dedicated his life to serving God. And he talked about his life. He said, he said in, in 53 years ago, he made a commitment that every other day he would, he would exercise vigorously. So every other day for the last 53 years, he's gone for a six-mile run. And following that six-mile run, he works himself hard. And he said that at 74 years old now, he feels as good as he did at 24. That's pretty amazing. But he used that as a way to illustrate something else. He said that 52 years he made a commitment that every day he would spend time doing devotions, spending time with the Lord in devotions, in prayer and Bible study. 52 years ago, he decided to do that. And he said, he said not every day that he's in devotions are amazing. Uh, there are times where he struggled with it, particu particularly after the loss of his da daughter. He said the last thing in the world he wanted to do was open up his, his Bible because he was mad at God. The last thing he wanted to do was pray, but he did it anyway. And he said now that he's 74 years old and he looks over the course of his life, he said that he and his wife are happier than they've ever been. And that has to do with his relationship with Christ, the fact that he has walked with Christ all of these years through the ups and downs, the things that he has gone through. We have this picture that Paul is calling us to, this kind of holy life, where we not give in, where we not give up. And that leads us to the second thing, that we not give in, that we not give in. Verses 3 through 7, we read this, and now Paul gets very specific about what he's talking about. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now he begins by telling us what God's will is. And that's sanctification. Many of us, many times in our lives when we want to know God's will, what do we ask? Lord, should I take this job? Should I leave the job that I'm in? Should I move to this place? Um, should I... Should I get into this relationship? Whatever it is, we're seeking the Lord about these big things in life. But one of the things that the Bible often tells us, and, it's, and it's in, it doesn't always tell us what to do specifically in every circumstance, but one thing that we learn about the will of God, particularly if you compare this to Romans 12, is that we can discern God's will when we live 
a life of holiness. In fact, this is what he says. Um, He says to us, we want to know what God's will is for our life. He says, your sanctification. And and, and this word here for sanctification, it's a big word. Um, We try not to use a lot of theologically loaded terms, confusing terms. But this is a word that every Christian should know about. In fact, the the word comes from the word to be holy. Um, We have a shortened version of this word. It's saint. And actually, when he talks about our sanctification as God's will, there's, there's, there's there's three aspects to sanctification. The first aspect is something known as positional sanctification. That is, is that the moment that we enter into a relationship with Jesus... When we confess our sin, we turn from our sin and we place our faith and trust in him and believe that he died on the cross from us and rose from the dead. At that moment, when we turn to him, he justifies us, meaning he declares us righteous, and he sanctifies, meaning that he sanctifies us, meaning he makes us holy. And to be holy, it means that we are set apart unto him for his use. And so the Bible tells us that when, when we enter into a relationship with Christ, at that moment, we are sanctified. We are made holy, and that's a holiness that is positional. But many of you may be saying to yourselves, wait a second, that doesn't mesh with my life. I don't feel very holy. When I go through life, I, I find myself sinning. I find myself making mistakes. I find myself doing the wrong things. And, uh, and if you feel that way, well, you're in good company because I'm certainly there with you. And everybody else in this room is there with you. Yes, we are positionally holy. Yes, we are holy in his sight, but we don't feel holy. Why? Well, there's another aspect to sanctification, and that's progressive sanctification. So throughout the course of our life, as we walk with Christ... He continually conforms us so that we become more and more like Jesus. He uses all of the circumstances that we go through, both good and bad, for a purpose, to make us more like Christ. And so as we go through the course of our life, we will become more and more Christ-like as we walk with him. Some days we'll feel like we're stepping back. Some days we will sense God bringing us to a new place in our growth. That's that's the second element of sanctification. And then there's a third element of sanctification, and that's final sanctification. And that's something we all look forward to. That's the day when, when after this life is over, we stand in God's presence. And what he will do is our life, the way that we are, the way that we live, will match who we are, our status in Christ. So often I, I meet Christians here in this congregation who say, oh, I, I wish I could, I could be with the Lord now because, because, I, because I, I realize that my sin is so great and I, and I can't stand grieving the Lord anymore with my sin. Well, that, that's an earnest, that's a beautiful desire. And, and really, that's what God is going to do. He promises that. So there's going to be a day where we're no longer going to struggle with sin anymore, and that's final sanctification. And so Paul is pointing out to these believers that, that uh, he wants them. God's will for us is that we are sanctified. And so how does that help us discern God's will? Well, number one, that is God's will for us. But as we're living a life in which a uh, life that's consecrated to Jesus Christ, and as the different trials and things that we face in our life come our way, 
It's when we're in that place where we are seeking him that we are in the best position to make the best decisions and choices for the life that we live. It's within that, within that place of, of following him and walking after him and, and uh, living a life that's conformed to his will and his desires for us that we will understand as we go what he wants us to do, even though sometimes it feels like we're looking at a big wall in front of us and we don't know what's on the other side. This is something that God does in us. This is how God leads us as we go through this life that we live. Well, um, so now that he's raised this, that, the, that their uh, sanctification is God's will, now he moves to a topic that is particularly crucial for this sanctification. He tells us in verse 3, or he commands them and he commands us, because of the authority again of the Lord Jesus, he reminds them to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, what does that word sexual immorality refer to? Well, it's pretty simple. It's a broad term. The term is pornea. And it refers to any sexual activity that takes place without a covenantal relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. Anything that occurs outside of that is sexual immorality. And so we have a very clear statement of the kind of life that God calls us to live. Well, why did Paul bring this up at this point? Why did he bring it up first? Well, there could be a couple of reasons. Number one, remember, Paul started writing this letter right after Timothy returned to him and Silas. Uh, Paul was in Corinth. And, um, and Timothy had been in Thessalonica. And perhaps Timothy noticed that in some circles in the church, they were becoming lax about this. That could be the reason. Or it could be because he was writing from Corinth to people living in Thessalonica. Corinth was, was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Um, it was a place filled with licentiousness. Paul was living there. He saw it. And Thessalonica wasn't far behind it. There's, um, just to get a perspective on, the, on the, 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 the way that people thought about um, purity and morality in those days, just the common culture, um, we have this, um, this quote from Demosthenes. Uh, this is what he said. We keep mistresses for pleasure... Concubines, concubines were slaves. Concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs. But we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. So this is the culture that Paul preached the gospel in. A culture where this was accepted, where this was commonplace. And in fact, in these cities, they would, they would intermingle this kind of... Um, uh, immorality with the worship of their Greek gods, Roman gods. In fact, um, in, in many of these cities, they, they had temple prostitutes. And at night, these temple prostitutes would, be, would go out into the city, and it would be part of religious duty for these people to engage in these things. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine what it would be like living in a place like that. And the truth of the matter is, is that we don't have that going on. We don't have temple prostitutes going into the streets at night, engaging in kind, these kinds of things. However, we do have other things. 
we have, we have cable television, and we have the internet, and we have all sorts of avenues that are out there that reach their tentacles into our lives and draw us in just like those people would have been drawn in in that day. And Paul warns them. He understands the danger. He understands the temptation. He understands that these people, many of these people, particularly these people who were Gentiles, came out of this, and he understood that it was just a few months maybe between when they were converted and how easy it would be for them to go back, how easy it would be for them to give up the race, how easy it would be for them to stop. And so he encourages them to go on and on and on for Christ, and to never give in. So what does he suggest we do about this temptation? Well, first, he says in verse 4, each must learn how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, one of the great things about being a follower of Jesus is that we're not left without the tools to resist temptation and sin. In fact, the Bible tells us that um, God places his Holy Spirit in us. Not only does he declare us righteous and, and, and adopt us into his family and he justifies, or yeah, I already just said that, but he justifies us. He does all of these things, but he actually places his Holy Spirit in our life when we come to him in faith. And as a consequence of that relationship, the Holy Spirit produces certain things in our lives. And we, we have mentioned this many, many times. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that while our works don't produce salvation, our salvation does produce good works. And that's because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And Galatians 5, and 23 tells us what that looks like. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. So one of the, one of the fruit of being in relationship with Jesus, uh, part of the fruit of having the Holy Spirit within us is that the Holy Spirit produces within us self-control. So he says each one of us must learn how to control our own bodies. Now what does this look like? What does this look like in the Christian when we have the Holy Spirit within us? Well, I think one factor, one critical component of this is that God gives us the want to, the Holy Spirit gives us the want to, to obey God. It doesn't mean that we always obey God. But what the Holy Spirit gives us is the want to, to obey God. And if we lack the want to, to obey God, then we need to ask ourselves the question whether or not we actually do know God. In fact, we read about this in Romans 8. Romans 8, it uh, it tells us, verses 5 through 7, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. This is just how it is. This, is. this is their predisposition. This is how we were before we came to know Christ. Our minds were set on the things of the flesh. This is, this is part of being in our old fallen nature. But something changes when we enter into a relationship with Jesus when we're born again. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit things of the spirit for to set the minds on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot now so when we look at this and we see Paul's command here for believers it's important that we don't extrapolate this and say that we then expect all unbelievers to live like a Christian these these expectations that Paul is laying down for the Christian life are for the Christian. 
It's because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to say no to all ungodliness. And as a, as a result of that, uh, we will have the want to to obey him. Though sometimes we feel like we fall on our face over and over and over again. But isn't it just such an encouraging thing to know that when we find ourselves in the depths of our struggles, we know that we don't have to be defeated? I believe that Romans 7, when Paul speaks about the struggle that he has, I believe that Paul is describing the struggle that he had as a religious man trying to obey God without the Spirit of God living inside of him. He said, the things that I want to do, I do not do, and the things I do not want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins in Romans 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. This is, this is what happens to us when we enter into this relationship with Christ. We have his Holy Spirit within us and his Holy Spirit compels us to obey him. And as a result of it, he gives us the tools to live the life that we've been called to live. What, what if you feel like you've fallen on your face? I want you to know. Just go to him. Confess it to him. He, he can hear it. He, can, he, he will listen to you. Crowd him and say, Lord, you, you have promised me that one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, Lord. And I, I feel like I don't have it. Say, say, Lord, please give it to me. And I believe that every time we stumble, if we come back to him and we offer it to him, I believe that eventually he will give us victory. But every time we stumble, if it's a hundred times we stumble, we need to go back to him. If it's a thousand times we stumble, we need to go back to him. If it's a million times we stumble, we need to go back to him. And I believe that he will give us the victory as we call upon him to rescue us from these things that burn so much in our hearts. Second thing, second thing we need to remember if we are to, when we, when we deal with this kind of temptation, we need to remember that God is the one who ultimately polices his people. God is the one who ultimately is, is the one who polices his people. Women were unquestionably the victims of rampant immorality in those days, just as you saw in that quote from Demosthenes. Women suffered terribly, and I'm sure for many of those women, they felt as if there was no way to redress their concerns, all of the injustices that were done to them. And what, what, what God is saying in that text is, no, I will police my people. We read that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. Now, this word, avenger, is used for, for a, a magistrate or a civil official who would punish wrongdoers. And what God is saying is, is that he is taking that place of an avenger. These, these women in particular in that culture felt powerless and hopeless. God was going to be their defender. And, and the same is true in our lives when we've maybe gone through things like this. God is our avenger. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. So um, if there's anything that should give us pause in our dealings with others, it is this fact that God is the avenger and the one who polices his people. Now, 
What, what do we do in light of this? Well, number one, we must recommit ourselves every day to a life of holiness. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Number two, we must be quick to admit our failings and be quick to forgive others when they sin against us. Why must we be quick to to, um, admit our failings? Well, that's the entry point in the Christian life. When we humble ourselves and we come to the place that we recognize that we are a sinful person, we are under God's wrath because we have sinned against a holy God and as a just God, he must punish sin, but he gave his son in our place so that through faith in him, we can have eternal life and we we turn away from our sin and we place our trust in him. We acknowledge the fact that we have a need for him. We acknowledge the fact that we are lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, and only he can make us alive. Well, if that's the case, if that's what we do when we enter into the Christian life, then it should be so much easier when we sin against a, a brother or sister to, to quickly own what we have done. This is the, this is the natural the impulse of the person who has experienced redemption. It is that, that humility that comes with that relationship with God. That's why we should be quick to admit our sins and our faults. And also, the gospel is the reason why we should be quick to, to accept others when they have sinned against us, to forgive others when they have sinned against us. Because we know that we have sinned this much against God, and this person has sinned this much against us. And if God has forgiven us this, then we should forgive those other people. This is, this is a key element of of. of Living lives that, that can find restoration, even in a world where there is so full of sin. Well, I'd like to get to the third one. So the first thing he tells us is never give up. The second is never give in. And the third is always look up. Always look up. Look at verse 8. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This, therefore, is emphatic. It's an emphatic position, meaning that Paul is now going to lay down the stakes. He's going to make what he's saying abundantly clear. The word here for disregard, whoever disregards this, disregards man, not man, but God, um, is a word, um, this is uh, Gene Green, a New Testament scholar, he puts it this way. It's used in biblical literature to speak of infidelity to and rejection of authority. So this is a word that is linked to infidelity. So what is he saying? To put it simply, unfaithfulness to our spouse is unfaithfulness to God. When we are being unfaithful in our relationship with one another, we are being unfaithful to God himself. You know, we talk a lot about this, right? A lot of people think, they wonder, why are Christians so uptight about sexual immorality? And I think that part of the, the failure, maybe that we're seeing in our culture, is because the church hasn't done a very good job telling the story of why, right? We, we say, don't, but we never say why. Or I shouldn't say never, but rarely is... Why? Never heard. But it's good just to do a survey of the Bible and think about the story of the Bible. 
You see, marriage is at the heart of the Bible story. Think about in, um, in the early chapters of Genesis. Do you know that the book, the Bible begins right at the very beginning with a wedding between um, a man and a woman in a garden? And think about the end of the Bible. Do you know that the Bible ends with a marriage between God and his people in a garden city? The story of marriage is one that, that goes across the entire fabric of the Bible. In Romans chapter 5, Paul puts these pieces together. And he tells us that, that, the, that the husband in the marriage relationship is to, is to, to, to be a type of Jesus. Obviously a flawed type of Jesus, imperfect type of Jesus. But no less, we are, we, are to, we are to put Jesus on display in our marriage. Not only in our marriage, but we are to put Jesus on display before the whole world. And, and you know what the wife's role is in the marriage? It's to, it's to be a reflection of the church in her relationship with Jesus. So as she honors and she loves her husband, so she's, she is painting the picture of the love of the church for her Savior. And so sometimes when we hear about marriage, what do we hear often? It's nothing but what? A piece of paper, right? Oh, what does marriage mean? It's nothing but a piece of paper. I want to tell you that, that marriage means everything in that sense. Because when we're married and we're living in relationship with another person, it's not really even about us anymore. It's about him. Our lives, our relationships, our, our, our faithfulness to, to, to one another is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. And so when we look at the whole grand sweep of the Bible, we see that, that our marriages, our relationships with one another, and, 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 and maybe you're not married yet, your marriage in the future, the way that you live now, is a reflection, is a reflection about what you believe about Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important. That's why, that's why sexual immorality is something that comes up over and over and over again in Scripture. Because when we are faithful to one another, we are ultimately being unfaithful to God because God has designed this relationship as this beautiful picture of his love for his people. And so that brings us to our points of application today. Number one, number one, <clears throat> when we are unfaithful to each other, we tell a lie about the gospel. When we are unfaithful to each other, we tell a lie about the gospel. Again, men, your faithfulness to your wives, being spiritual leaders in your home, you're to reflect Jesus, Jesus to your wives. Why do we, well, why does Paul say, men, men, Lay down your lives for your wives as Jesus laid down his life for you. Again, wives, when you, when you serve the Lord in your relationship with your husband, when you love him and honor him and you bless him, oh, how you put on display the beauty 
of the church and, and what it's supposed to be. The church always, doesn't always put that on display. But, but in your relationships, you can, you can show that to a world that desperately is looking for, for more than just the, the, the quick relationships that we see now. This is a, a relationship that is a relationship of commitment long term. This is what God wants for us. And so when we aren't faithful in that regard, then we're telling a lie about the gospel. But one beautiful thing about the gospel is that God is a God of second chances. Maybe you have failed in one way or another. When you think about your marriage relationship and the things that you've done, maybe in this way, I want you to know that there's redemption. And that's what the gospel is all about. Today can be a new day in your life. What about those who are single and don't have a God-given context to fulfill these de desires. I would like you to just um, consider the words of John Stott. John Stott was a theologian, he was a pastor. Uh, he died uh, probably a decade or so ago, maybe two. And uh, John Stott was single all of his life, lived to be an old man. And so this is what he wrote. And actually, when he was considering this passage, he said this, what about us, meaning singles? We too must accept this apostolic teaching. However hard it may seem as God's good purpose, both for us and for society, we shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided that we submit to it. It, it is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness accompanied sometimes by acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people. Number two. We have not only been saved from God's wrath, but unto a life of holiness. Now, sometimes when we think about salvation, we just think about it in terms of the time when we were saved. And, and um, when we talk about salvation, we can, we can actually talk about it in different ways, as we, we mentioned earlier. We can say, I, have, I am saved. That means justification. One day in the past when we turned from our sin and trusted Jesus as our Savior, he justified us, he made us righteous, and at that moment we are saved. We can't lose that salvation. It is there. If it is genuine, we have been saved. And then we can talk about the fact that we are being saved. That's sanctification. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That as we go through the course of this life, he, he is now working out his salvation in us as we are becoming more and more conformed to Christ. And then finally we can talk about, we can say, I shall be saved. Meaning one day I'm going to experience the fullness of the salvation when I'm forever with him. When I am where I was made to be and for the one I was made to be for. That, 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 is, that is how we can speak about salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved. And one of the elements of that is that God has saved us not just from wrath, but he has saved us for a life of holiness, that our lives would be reflective of what it means to follow Jesus. And then finally, third, a life of consecration is not ultimately dependent on our self-discipline, 
but upon God's spirit within us. The, the world is riddled with those who seek to live holy lives but don't have the Holy Spirit within them, and it is a frustrating process. As we mentioned a little bit earlier with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, And one of the things that the Christian life does as we enter into union with him is that it fosters dependency on him. And so if you feel weak, if you feel unable, I want you to know that you're in the right right place. Because we know someone who is able, that we can go to and we can depend upon, and that day by day he will carry us through whatever the struggles might be. It could be this thing. It could be something else in your life. We all struggle with different things, but the, but the essence is the same. Whatever it is we struggle with, if we carry those things day by day, he promises to help us lift that load. In fact, we, we have these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you believe that? You carrying a heavy burden, heavy load today, you know that you could come to Christ and he'll carry that burden, he'll carry that load, and he'll, he'll transform your life. Come to him, trust him with your life. He is faithful This room is full of people who have trusted him with their life and they they can testify to to the way that he has carried them through and he'll carry you through. So the question for for you is, do you know him? Have you come to know him? Once you come to know him, once you enter into a relationship with him, everything will be different, everything will be made new. It won't be easier, but it'll be better. Let's pray.